The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the Chief of Critical Care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks, Yasha. Today in Blue Journal Podcasts, we are going to be discussing the article, Multicenter Development and Validation of a Risk Stratification Tool for Ward Patients, which appears in the September 15, 2014 edition of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Discussing this article with me will be Dr. Matthew Chirpek, who is the lead author on this study. Dr. Chirpek is an assistant professor of medicine in the section of pulmonary and critical care at the University of Chicago. His research focuses on developing clinical prediction models for detecting clinical deterioration in hospitalized patients in order to decrease preventable hospital death. He is supported by a K08 grant from the NHLBI to derive predictive algorithms to identify such high-risk ward patients. In this study, he's going to describe how he and his colleagues used a data set of over 250,000 patients across five hospitals to derive a new clinical prediction rule. Joining us as an expert discussant will be Dr. Brian Cuthbertson. Dr. Cuthbertson is Chief of the Department of Critical Care Medicine at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto, Canada. He is also Professor in the Interdepartmental Division of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Toronto, and he is also an Honorary Professor of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Aberdeen. His research interests include improving outcomes from critical illness and major surgery. He has over 100 peer-reviewed publications and $10 million of research grants, and he has played a leading role in a number of key clinical guidelines. Thank you both for joining me. Dr. Chirpik, you and your colleagues appear to have taken a big data approach to answering a question that the critical care community has struggled with for about the last 20 years. How is it possible to identify effectively patients who are at risk for crashing? So potentially we can do something about it beforehand. Please describe for us how you and your team perform this big data modeling. Thank you for the question. We were really excited to have, you know, the amount of data we had for this study. And I think there were three particular areas that we really thought were, you know, very important in terms of trying to develop the most accurate risk score, but also to develop one that would actually be able to be used in practice. So the first decision we had to make was to actually figure out which of the predictor variables we were actually going to include in the model. Because there's so, you know, such a wealth of information in the electronic health record, we had to decide, you know, of all the things that are out there, what to focus on. I mean, in this particular study, we wanted to find variables that were fairly universal across hospitals, both in the country and potentially, you know, across hospitals uh, around the world. And so we decided to focus on things like demographic variables, vital signs, as well as laboratory variables. In addition, we had to decide what outcome to use, and so we ended up with a combination of cardiac arrest, ICU transfer, or death on the wards as a composite outcome. We were particularly interested in cardiac arrest because we know that these patients have a very high mortality, and we also know that the cardiac arrests that occur on the ward are often events that are predictable and sometimes even preventable. We also know with ICU transfer that some patients have delays 
prior to going to the ICU, and these potentially could increase the morbidity and mortality. And finally, there's also some emerging data to suggest that rapid response teams at the bedside of patients who are comfort care might actually improve outcomes in those patients as well. The third part of this was trying to figure out exactly how to model this type of data. As you might have guessed, when you look at electronic health record data, it turns out that it's very messy data. You often have vital signs that are collected at certain time points and then laboratory values that are collected often once a day or so in the average patient at different time points, and these are just irregularly spaced over time. And so we had to figure out exactly how we would model these types of data. So what we ended up doing, we had the luck of having uh, Professor Robert Gibbons at our uh, institution here who actually has done a lot of work with longitudinal data analysis. And uh, he introduced us to the concept of discrete time survival analysis, which essentially involves separating time into discrete intervals. This actually has decades of research behind it, and it actually allowed us to model the messy electronic health record data in, uh, in a way that had a very firm statistical foundation. So we essentially developed the model then in the first 60% of the data and then validated it in the last 40%. And in that last validation set, we were able to compare it to the MUSE. Dr. Cuthbertson, Dr. Tripak just mentioned that the comparator score that they used to judge the accuracy of their novel eCard score was uh, something called the MUSE, the Modified Early Warning Score, which, if I remember correctly, first started to be widely used in the United Kingdom and Ireland. Can you give us some sense of the background of the different kinds of risk assessment scores or what some call track and trigger scores that have been developed over the past years and how the new eCart score compares with these other scores? So it's been an interesting evolution of the development of these scores, probably starting back in the uh, mid-90s when Ken Hillman and his group in Australia published on the medical emergency team and their scoring system. This score, like many that preceded it, was based on solid clinical judgment, the, the belief that our clinical judgment of uh, abnormal physiological parameters could be brought together to develop an alert system to activate some form of a response team to uh, be brought to the bedside of a patient usually that's uh, not within an intensive care unit. The UK did indeed get highly involved with the early warning scoring system and then the modified early warning scoring system. And if the truth be told, there are multiple modifications of the modified early warning uh, scoring system. In fact, some reviews have identified as many as 36 different scores. What they all have in common up to that stage was that they were developed from clinical judgment and not from derivation and validation going back to basic data. A group that I worked with a few years ago published two different papers when we tried to go back to uh, physiological data for individual patients and derive both which parameters and which uh, cut points were the most useful to bring together in a score. But our study was significantly limited by a small data set and therefore that reduced the, the derivation and validation power of our cohort. Uh, more recently, people have been trying to uh, use bigger data and indeed various electronic hospital record data to try and uh, help uh, to derive and validate such scores. But really, the eCart system is the highest level of this, as you were just hearing, um, developed from you know big data, a very large data set, a large number of patients, but yet still individual patient data, and actually both derive and validate. 
a score that can be used uh, in clinical practice. And I think somehow, you know, there's a, there's a little lesson for us all within where we've gone with this because, in fact, uh, when you look back at things like the derivation of Apache 2, we actually had learned quite a long time ago in critical care that things like acute physiology, age, chronic health, and other such things could come together to predict outcome there, and we ended up uh, taking another sort of evolutionary route up the same tree to actually get to where we are today with these early warning scoring systems, which do share a lot of a lot in common with Apache and other such scoring systems from as far back as the 80s. So we've maybe relearned a little bit, but this is definitely the most furthest advanced and best validated score that exists to date in the literature, in my opinion. So, Dr. Trebek, I want to turn around and pick up on some of the things that Dr. Cuthbertson just mentioned. One, he makes an analogy to the Apache or, uh, I guess, other scoring systems that we've used for a couple of decades at least in the critical care units, such as SAPs and others. Those other scores often take into account some measure of chronic illness. The scores that were developed uh, using, I believe, the EPIC electronic medical record out at uh, Kaiser Permanente by Escobar and, and his co-workers took account of a lot of uh, chronic illnesses. Your score didn't emphasize that as much, and it would be great if you could explain why there are those differences. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is that you restricted yourself largely to objective data found in vital signs and lab values. Some of the other scores that have been published over the last several years, and I'm thinking specifically of scores like Lisa Kirkland's from the Mayo Clinic or the Rothman Index that was developed in Sarasota, Florida, have made extensive use of nursing observations, which may provide some value in, in assessing the wellness of a patient. Could you tell us a little bit about why you decided to restrict yourself to objective data? So that's a great question. You know, one of the first things that we had to do when we were building our prediction model was actually to determine which variables to even consider putting in the model. Certainly the Apache score and also um, some of the scores developed by uh, Dr. Escobar and his group have utilized chronic illness and even longitudinal burden of illness over time in their models. For our particular score, we wanted to first focus on those variables that are commonly collected across all hospitals, but also variables that were, are available in real time. We imagine that our score in the near future here will be used on a minute-by-minute -minute basis to potentially change the care of patients at our hospital. And therefore, we wanted to make sure that the variables were actually available. And so using things that potentially you'd have to go back, you know, after the hospital stay, like later billing records or things like that, um, would not be available in real time. And so we wanted to focus on real-time data. We're also very interested in adding other predictor variables to the model, such as nursing worry and also nursing documentation. However, those variables may not be universally captured or documented across hospitals. And so for this first model, we wanted to focus on variables that are commonly collected, such as vital signs and laboratory values, in order to try to create the most generalizable risk score. Dr. Cuthbertson, I wanted to return to something that you mentioned when you framed Dr. Chirpak's and his colleagues' work compared to the scores that we've been developing as a community over the last 20 years, and that is the use of big data compared with the more intuitive, ground-up, physiologically-based scores such as the modified early warning score or the patient-at-risk score that were developed in Australia and the UK. 
one of the things that strikes me about the big data approach to developing these risk prediction tools is that they generate associations, but when physicians or other caregivers get to the bedside, we have to return to the world of cause and effect. And it can be sometimes a little bit mystifying, perhaps, to get called to a patient's bedside because a risk score is high, but not really have a strong sense of what to do as a clinician to modify that risk for an individual patient. And I wonder if you could uh, give us a little insight on that dilemma. So I'm not convinced that the big data approach has further removed this from uh, relevance to our patients. I think what we're saying here is we've used large clinical databases, but still of real-time uh, collected clinical information about individual patients. Uh, it's just given us more explanatory power by having more observations and more events. And therefore, as has been demonstrated in this paper, at times now thousands of events in tens and hundreds of thousands of patients. So uh, that, to me, doesn't change the clinical relevance of it, although some aspects are important, such as the clinical utility of such scores. So, for instance, a muse can be calculated in seconds, possibly even in your head at the bedside, whereas an e-cart would actually need some form of calculation to actually derive it for yourself. Now, that reduces the utility, but in fact, if it actually becomes a more accurate score, uh, then we would probably be willing to go some of the way down that uh, route to a slightly lower utility, but for a slightly higher effectiveness in order to be able to identify the right patients. But the second part of your point is one of the keys now going forward with this, because these systems classically have both an afferent and an efferent limb to them. The afferent part is how do you get to find out who these patients that I need to see are, and that's all about early warning scoring systems. It's about can a test or a scoring system get you to the bedside of a patient who's about to be very unwell, is already deteriorating, earlier to make an intervention. So I would suggest that what eCart has done has taken us quite a long way now towards developing scores that are as reliable as they can be from existing clinical and biochemical, sort of physiological and biochemical data. But the question now becomes, what do you do when you get to the bedside? Do you treat the score as nothing more than something that gets you to the bedside and then you simply put your clinical judgment back into place? So all it is is a summons device. Or does it actually uh, require you to do specific things when you actually get to the bedside? And this is one of the things that we still do not know. And this is further studies, I think, need to actually ask this question using the best scores that are available that get you to the side of the patient's bed in the most reliable, not entirely reliable, but the most reliable fashion. What do we need to do when we get there? And I could picture further studies, for instance, having a cluster randomized controlled trial design where the intervention is actually, uh, could be protocolized depending on the score in the intervention group versus a control group which relies on clinical practice and clinical judgment to decide on the management of these patients. But to date, we still haven't managed to make that link between the score getting you to the patient and the improvement in outcome. And the highest level of evidence for this is the MET study, the cluster RCT from Australia, which sadly was not able to improve outcome in those patients. Dr. Chirpak, to change 
direction slightly. Uh, I wanted to draw readers' uh, attention to figure three of your paper. And in that figure, at least to my eyes, there appears to be an inflection in the ECART score that occurs somewhere around eight to ten hours prior to the event of interest. Is this just, you know, my eye test deceiving me, or, or do you think that this inflection point uh, is genuine? And, and what changes in the data that you measured represented this possible inflection point? And does this possible inflection point represent a moment at which medical providers or nursing providers could intervene to prevent further deterioration? So that's a great question. One of the things that we were interested in when we were developing the score is not only to make sure that our risk score could accurately identify patients at the highest risk of the adverse outcomes, but also to make sure that there's plenty of time to intervene on the patients once the, the caregiver has got to the bedside. So for example, if you know, we could make a highly accurate score if we focused on the vital signs and laboratory values right at the time of the event, but unfortunately there wouldn't be enough time to actually prevent the adverse outcome from happening in the first place. And so one of the things we wanted to make sure we did was to actually visualize the change in the score over time. And what we noticed were a few interesting things. The first thing we saw was that the average score for patients suffering a cardiac arrest on the wards was higher than both ICU transfer patients and control patients for the entire 24 hours prior to the event. In addition, as you noted, there started to become an inflection point around eight hours or so before the event. There's probably a few reasons for that. I think one possible reason is that we know that vital signs are collected about every four hours or so in the hospitals that were included in this data set. And it turns out that the vital signs actually are the most accurate predictors um, in, in our model that included laboratory and other variables. And so it's likely that these changes in the score actually represented changes in vital signs soon prior to the illness. So I think what this suggests is that this score can actually predict these events, but not only accurately in terms of whether a patient actually had the event or not, but also potentially early enough to provide some outcome, outcome improvement for these patients. Finally, it's also possible that for the, you know, since these are average trends of the score, that this also might represent sort of the average natural history of critical illness on the ward for the patients who are going, you know, they start at a higher score, potentially suggesting a higher risk of an event, and as they go over time, then a second hit occurs that takes about somewhere between four and eight hours for them to be recognized, treated, and then potentially transferred to the ICU or unfortunately suffer a cardiac arrest. Dr. Cuthbertson, in the editorial that accompanies this article, Dr. Amaral, the editorialist, points out that the positive predictive value of a relatively high ECART score is still only 2.4%. And I was just hoping if you could help readers understand how, in the case of this kind of track and trigger score, how we could interpret these scores in light of traditional diagnostic test parameters like sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, and negative predictive value. And also if you could help us understand a relatively new concept that's introduced in this patient, which is the reclassification index that helps us understand how this score is different from the modified early warning score or MUSE. Thanks. So this is a somewhat complex question that I'm going to do my best to make as relevant to the clinical listener as I can. 
When you're a doctor and you have a patient in front of you and you have the suspicion that they have a condition, then a diagnostic test can help you to increase your uh, degree of certainty about whether that diagnosis uh, actually exists. In that situation, the parameters of the test you're most interested in are the sensitivity and specificity. You have a patient and then a test, and the sensitivity and specificity explain to you the chance that that patient with a positive test has the diagnosis. This is a slightly different situation. This is a situation where you have a positive test that leads you to a patient. So the directionality of the test is somewhat different. In that situation, you're asking a different question. You're saying, does this positive test have a positive patient attached to it? In our case, that's a critically ill patient or a patient at risk of critical illness or acute deterioration. In that situation, as a clinician, you're wanting to ask yourself a different question. You're wanting, indeed, to say to yourself that question, what chance is it that this patient will be someone that I need to see and may indeed need to do an intervention on? The value that you want to know about in that situation is actually positive predictive value rather than sensitivity, and that's the key issue to do with that one patient. So if I go to that patient what chance do they need me to actually do an intervention or further monitoring on them? The second thing I think you really need to know as a clinician when you're running a rapid response team is to do with the general function of the test, and that's to say to yourself, you know, if I see 100 patients or 1,000 patients, how many of these will be correctly classified as needing help? And what we do with net reclassification statistics is we say to ourselves, if I add a new test in, how much more often will it classify people correctly? So, for instance, the eCART score has seen on 19% of occasions to identify a patient actually to be at risk of critical illness and appropriately triggers for that, and on 9% of the time identify the patient does not need it when the existing test, the MU score, would actually take you to a patient. So in summary, uh, the positive predictive value you want to know for your individual patient and the net reclassification tells you how well it's going to work for you as a system as you're applying an early warning score and indeed a rapid response team. Thank you, Dr. Cuthbert. It's a, a great explanation of why we looked at these different measures in our paper. I would also like to add that the concept of false positives in a study like this is a little tricky. So the positive predictive value is, of course, related to the, the prevalence of the outcome. And the fact that even though the AUC is very high and the positive predictive value is, is pretty low reflects the fact that, thankfully, these outcomes are relatively uncommon in the general ward population. In this study, we used ICU transfer and cardiac arrest as the primary outcomes, which thankfully are, are uncommon. But if you look at the positive predictive value, you're going to look at those patients who had those specific events. But if you actually look at patients with higher scores and look at what happens to them, it turns out that many of these patients are actually getting aggressive interventions and sometimes critical care-like interventions on the wards. They're often getting multiple fluid boluses, they're getting increase in their oxygen, they're getting other medications. And so, the, you know, I think an, an important and uh, interesting question is whether these patients are really truly false positives. In other words, if someone is getting active interventions by their primary team, would there be benefit of having a rapid response team or groups of people with critical care expertise at the bedside to aid in that type of resuscitation? You may not be staving off an ICU transfer, 
but you may potentially be decreasing length of stay or improving other outcomes. So I think, you know, it's possible that some of these events that we're calling false positives may in fact be types of uh, situations where critical care expertise and rapid response team may still have benefit. I think the only way to know that for sure is in the setting of a, of a randomized controlled trial or some other high-quality clinical study. But, you know, I think the patients with the highest scores are often very sick patients. I think further studies are necessary to determine, you know, the, what the overall benefit of these interventions and these early warning scores are for these high-risk patients. Based on all this, Dr. Terpak, where are you going to go from here? So I think there are a lot of exciting directions to go from here. I think, you know, one of the most exciting really is to um, implement a real-time intervention of our early warning score. We've actually been working on piloting an earlier version of our score on some wards in our hospital, which just completed. And so we're looking forward to uh, implementing our newly derived risk score in real time and start to send the, that information to the rapid response team and potentially other caregivers to see how it affects outcomes. I think there are a couple other directions we can go here. I think, you know, one is to continue to try to find ways to improve the model. You know, as we just talked about, you know, luckily these are uncommon events. But because they're uncommon, even small improvements in the accuracy of the model can sometimes lead to hundreds of less false positives. And so, you know, I really still think continuing to try to improve the model by adding other predictors or using other methods would potentially have benefit. In addition, as Dr. Cuthbertson mentioned, one of the most important aspects of this is not only getting the people into the room, but once they're there, trying to figure out, you know, what should they be doing? And actually, who are the right people in the room? There have been many studies in, in the past looking at, you know, who should be leading the rapid response team? Should it be physicians? You know, should it be a critical care nurse? Or, you know, in many hospitals, it's actually a nurse with other duties who comes in to see the rapid response team. So I think there's more work to be done to determine, you know, who actually needs to be at the bedside. Finally, I think there will be a lot of interesting work in determining what should be done once they get to the bedside, they see the score, and what is the best way to present the score to the team in order to help them determine, you know, what interventions might be beneficial to the patients. So I think there's a lot of really exciting things that we can do in this area, and I think, you know, there's a lot more work to be done. Dr. Cuthbertson, as somebody who's been working in this area for a long time, you have the long perspective of experience and interventions that have exceeded and interventions that have failed. Where do you see the future for these track and trigger systems? So it's important that we realize that track and trigger systems will never be perfect. And I agree with the comments Dr. Chirpek has made. They will not always manage to bring you to the right patient at the right time. And therefore, if we're going to use them, we have to accept that we're going to have to see patients that don't always need our intervention to find the ones that really do. I believe that's a price that's well worth paying. And I think uh, we just have to work on the, the fine-tuning of such scores to try and make that as efficient as possible for us to see these patients at the right time. But I do think the bigger emphasis now and actually is working out more to do with the efferent system, as we were hearing, more to do with what we do and how we do it when we get to these patients. How do we put level of care and dependency on top of that? How do we put team activities and interventions on top of that? And I believe that is indeed the right place to now focus. And I commend this work, which I think has certainly added significantly to our understanding of the field. Today we discussed Dr. Chirpek's paper, Multi-Center Development and Validation of a Risk Stratification Tool for Ward Patients, 
which is published in the September 15, 2014 edition of the Blue Journal. We discussed how Dr. Chirpek and his team at the University of Chicago used a big data approach to derive a novel track and trigger warning system that identifies patients at high risk for clinical deterioration while they're hospitalized in the hospital ward. Together with Dr. Cuthbertson, we discussed some of the pros and cons of such an approach, including how to rationalize the global use of a big data approach with a bedside cause and effect approach that most clinicians have to employ. We discussed some of the indices that Dr. Chirpek and his team used to study how accurate their score is, and we also discussed how this score fits in the context of a number of different scoring systems that have been published over the years in the medical literature. Thank you for listening.